Welcome to Poppy Land Songs, hashtag life on a cliff edge. Written and produced by me, your host, Bertie. Poppy Land Songs is supported using public funding through Arts Council England. There upon the cliffs you'll find Poppy Land Where it all began Episode 3, The Village of Millionaires For those who lived and died in Poppy Land Hello again. Welcome back to Popland Songs. Hashtag life on a cliff edge. If you haven't listened to episode one and two and want to know what this is all about, then I might suggest you have a listen back. You can find it on Popland Radio website or on my website, BertieBow.com. In brief, I'm a musician and composer. I'm collecting stories past, present and future from this tiny part of the world known as Popland, which is where I grew up. The stories I've been gathering are the inspiration for a song cycle celebrating life on a cliff edge. I'm still seeking people who'd like to share their story with me, so if you want to get involved then please get in touch at popularandsongs at gmail.com. I've been sharing with you some of my great-great-aunt Kit's journals which document the lives of some of her neighbours. In rural England, if you didn't have a horse, donkey, a boat or a bicycle, which weren't even invented until 1885, then you didn't really travel very much beyond where you could walk. Up here in North Norfolk, many people remained local. That's not to say that no one ever left. John Gray tells how local men James Crask and two brothers, Larry and Henry Reynolds, went all the way to Australia. And John's uncle, old James Mortar of Napton, went to America and it took him half a year to get there on a sailing ship. Do any of these names ring any bells? James Crask, Larry and Henry Reynolds, James Mortar? If so, let me know. John had a dicker, a donkey, and cart, and used that to get about. One day on my birthday, I put the dicker in the cart, and they say, where are you going to? So I says, I don't know. They say, you must know, but I didn't know where I was going to. Well, I think I, I hadn't been to talk for a while, so I goes to see some folks I know there, and then I goes along the Tops Hill, and over Hagen Beck, and across to Alby to see my brother-in-law. Again, the church, a young woman give me a shilling, but I never did ask for it. And then I went across Twite Common. As usual, Kit transcribed John's words phonetically as she hears them. So I did wonder at first where Torp, Tops Hill and Twite Common were. But looking at the map, I realised, of course, he was talking about Thorpe and Thwaite Common. Whilst Kit's journals tell the stories of her neighbours, her mother, Catherine, who also kept a journal, was more concerned with family life. She kept her diary in the form of poetry. Getting home, June 1926, Catherine Samuel Hoare. There's a corner in England where I long to be. Tis the corner that lies on the cliff by the sea. There is home, there is rest. It holds all I love best. That corner that's close to the fickle North Sea.
shine like diamonds The sea shiver silver The white marble clouds Forget me not skies That's where you'll find me Down by the sea Down by the sea The gulls dance on wind Sings to me a sweet melody of sea siren song. That's where you'll find me down by the sea, down by the sea. love the seaside, the restorative, clear, salty air, the beaches, the wide, open skies, the huge horizon. The home that Kit's mother is referring to in her poem is Sidestrand Hall, which is now a school for kids with special needs, right next to Sidestrand Church. The halls were from London, but they bought Sidestrand Hall and the land back in 1836. They employed local labourers to work the land and rented the house to a Mrs Emma Starling, a widow with her daughter, also called Emma. They had one servant, 16-year-old Ellen Paul from Overstrand. During their stay, they renamed it the Highlands. Again, do any of these names mean anything to you, Ellen Paul or the Starlings? Get in touch if they do at poppylandsongs at gmail.com. It wasn't until 1897 when they moved there officially. They received a letter from their tenants and the parishioners of Sidestrand welcoming them on July the 20th, 1897. It thanks them for their generosity 
good feeling and kind-heartedness shown to us all whenever possible. Besides employing farmers and labourers, they had extended the hall and took on many staff, therefore providing gainful employment to a previously struggling and poor community. They also built the reading rooms, the place where it all started for me with those negotiations and the deal struck to buy a Hammond organ for the price of a song cycle. The reading rooms were designed for exactly what they are called, a place for reading and the education of the local community. Before the steam train and the big tourist boom that followed in 1883, trips to the seaside were only really for those who could walk there or those who were wealthy enough to have means to travel and already owned or rented properties by the sea. There just weren't many solid brick properties in the area then. Cromer was a small fishing village, Overstrand was tiny, and Sidestrand was predominantly made up of small wooden homes for the farmers and labourers and their families, definitely not places for tourists to stay. Perhaps this is in large part why Clement Scott couldn't find anywhere to stay in Cromer on that fateful day which led him to the Mill House and Louis Jeremy. North Norfolk is not really somewhere you travel through to get anywhere else. It's the end of the line, the end of the road. Even now, with all our personal and public transport links, it isn't somewhere you would find yourself by chance. Therefore, when transport options were so very limited, outsiders must have been few and far between, besides the wealthy families. The Hawes were Quakers. Like the three other large wealthy families that could be found in North Norfolk, the Gurneys, Buxtons and Barclays, between them they owned the few other large residences, Cliff House, Morden House, The Grove, North Reps Hall, North Cottage, now known as North Lodge. In a dictionary of Cromer and Overstrand history by Christopher Pipe, incidentally an excellent source of tidbits of local knowledge, the famous writer and artist Kate Greenaway is quoted to have said on her visit to Cromer in August 1889 that Cromer is composed of the Hawes and Gurneys and Buxtons everywhere. When the steam engine arrived in Cromer alongside the impressive guerrilla marketing campaign conducted by Clement Scott via the Daily Telegraph and on behalf of the Great Eastern Railways, which we talked about in episode two, suddenly the area was full of tourists. The town was simply not built for the numbers who were arriving. So the locals opened up their homes to accommodate the ever-increasing visitors and hotels were quickly built. Over a fairly short period of time, Cromer was transformed, all driven by tourism, by the needs of visitors. Another thing to come out of Clement's passion for the North Norfolk coast was the transformation of the tiny village of Overstrand into what would come to be known as the village of millionaires. To give us all the juicy details, please meet Keith Hobday from the Belfry in Overstrand.
Hi, um, I'm Keith Hobday and I'm director of the Belfry Centre for Music and Arts, which is an art centre in Overstrand in North Norfolk near Cromer. Um, I grew up in Norfolk. Um, I'm nearly 50 now and I've lived in Norfolk all of my life. Um, and I love the area and have become recently very interested in the history of the area in particular. And through the Belfry Centre, we not only promote music and the arts, but we really are trying to promote the history of the area as well because it has such a rich heritage particularly during the Poppyland era. I might also add that Keith is an excellent violinist and teacher. I've known him since I was a kid and he was always the tall guy leading the orchestra. He and his partner Lucy have transformed the old Belfry School building into a community music and art centre. I went to the Belfry back in the 80s whilst it was still in the old building, the one you can see on the edge of the coast road. It was built in 1830 using the bricks from the bell tower of Overstrand Church, which is the reason it's called the Belfry. St Martin's at Overstrand was another local church that fell into disrepair and was moved just like the one at Sidestrand where Clement Scott fell in love and wrote the Garden of Sleep. The Belfry School was conceived and built by two cousins who lived locally called Anna Gurney and Sarah Buxton. There are those names again. Pioneers of their time, they recognised and believed strongly in the importance of an education for all children, and so they built this school for the locals many years before the Educational Act of 1880. In order to protect its future and retain it as an educational setting, they even set up a trust that prevented the building from being used for anything but education. If not for that trust, then I suspect the old school building would have long ago been turned into a private residence, or more likely these days, a luxury holiday let. But instead, thanks to the foresight of Anna and Sarah, and now to Keith and Lucy, it has continued to be at the heart of the community and is still focused on education, in particular, music and arts. Thank goodness. <laughs> My musical education started there, singing in every assembly, playing recorder, putting on plays and shows... I got to be Scrooge one year and the Mad Hatter another and I remember playing Oh Danny Boy on my violin in a school concert, possibly one of my first concerts. I'm proud to say that I'm now teaching piano and guitar there too so I have the opportunity to return to where I began. As we know from Clement's description, Overstrand was a tiny village, mostly fields with a handful of modest dwellings for the fishing community. So... Originally when Clement Scott came here and there's that the mill house and that sort of uh, story, there was not really any buildings in Overstrand to speak of, apart from a few sort of villagers' houses and things. We know that Mill House on the edge of Overstrand and Sidestrand, run by the miller's daughter Louis Jeremy, had become a very popular lodging place, in particular for creative types. But there was also a number of visitors who were clearly so enamoured by the place and were also so very wealthy that they decided to build their own accommodation for when they came to stay. Lord and Lady Battersea and George Lewis and Edgar Spire and Lord Hillingdon and they all decided to build these basically large houses. So there was one point there in about 1906 where we had the Plaisance, the Sea Marge, the Grange and then the Danish Pavilion and then Overstrand Hall, and then there were one or two other buildings that started popping up for other people. This bit of Popular history was completely new to me. Who were these people, and why did they want to be in Overstrand? 
the poetry and the writings from Clement Scott, which appeared in the newspapers at that time, were also uh, part of the whole sort of movement of people towards Overstrand and this part of the world. And Lord and Lady Battersea were basically the first people of note that moved to Overstrand. They got recommended to come and enjoy the sea air in North Norfolk. And that was really at the end of the 19th century. They first bought the two villas which became the Pleasance in about 1896. Lord and Lady Battersea were Cyril Flower, a Liberal Party politician and descendant of a Norfolk farmer, Jonathan Flower, and Constance Rothschild, who was a highly effective women's rights activist and instrumental in the emergence of Anglo-Jewish feminism. Wow. Cyril Flower, um, it wasn't just his name that was fabulous. He was often portrayed as handsome and with a love of bright colours. In the North Wales Daily News, he's described at Overstrand to be a gorgeous vision of pale blue, sea green or rose-coloured silk. At the bathing hour in the morning, he may be encountered clothed in white samite, mystic, wonderful. And in the evening, he has been seen resplendent in a ruby velvet dinner suit. Wowzers. <laughs> On further research, White Samite Mystic Wonderful is, in fact, a quote from a Tennyson poem, Mort d'Arthur. I can't work out who the author of this piece about Battersea was, but I think they had a crush. <laughs> Their marriage was childless. In 1902, he was involved in a scandal. Basically, he was publicly outed, which, of course, in those days led to his forced retirement. They were a glamorous, wealthy, from her side, and philanthropic pair. Their mutual love of Overstrand greatly benefited the community, but also people wanted to hang out with them. By moving to Overstrand, they had created the place to be. After Lord and Lady Battersea moved to Overstrand, they were very well connected. People wanted to come and stay with them. Lots of people came on holiday to them. Oscar Wilde came and stayed with them. Lots of famous politicians. Cyril Flower was a Liberal MP. And Prime Minister of the time, who was Asquith, came up to stay with them. So they were very well connected. And it became the place to be. And so people enjoyed it up here. Then they commissioned people to build them houses. So Edgar Speyer was one of those. Sir Edgar Speyer was an American born of German parents. He was a very rich financier and philanthropist. He was heavily involved with the proms, keeping them going, and also responsible for building much of the London underground. So he built Sea Marge on the clifftop in Overstrand. It's currently a hotel and previously an old people's home. But as a private residence, it was huge. He married Leonora von Stosch, who was a German heiress, but also a professional violinist. And Leonora von Stosch then became known as Lady Spire. And she was a fantastic violinist who recorded some... There's very few recordings of her actually playing, but there are a few from about 1911, 1912. Very early recordings of her playing a couple of little show pieces. And she's obviously a really talented player and beautiful sound. And Edgar Speyer was a very wealthy man. And Lady Speyer was very fortunate that Edgar was in a position to also buy her some really beautiful violins. 
So at one point, she owned a Stradivarius, which is one of the most beautiful violins in the world, one particular Strad that she had, which was um, the one that then went on to be played by Hudi Menuhin. And then at the same time, she also owned a Guarneri del Gezu, which is the equivalent to a Stradivarius, but not quite as well known. But both of those violins are really some of the great instruments that the world's ever seen. And she was really lucky to have them, but was obviously a wonderful player. And back in the day, I think she did play with the uh, Queen's Hall Orchestra at the Albert Hall with Henry Wood conducting, and she did some concertos. And Lady Spire also put on a fundraising concert in the Belfry School, where we're sitting at the moment. And um, in 1905, 1906, she was really good friends with Lady Battersea at the Plaisance, and uh, Lady Spire put on a concert of her friends. Some professional musicians came up from London, and they did a fundraising concert for the school in the school hall, which had just been built at that point. So the original school was built in 1830, but then the new hall on the back was built at about 1905, 1906, and this was a fundraising concert in the new hall. As a community, we were so lucky to have had these incredibly wealthy philanthropic residents living here in Poppyland. Between the Gurneys, Buxtons and Hawes, and now these new residents, we can really see the legacy that they have left. I'm almost giddy at the thought of those two violins spending time here and being played. I'm always fascinated to hear about female musicians too. There would have been so many barriers to her having a career as a violinist, but she was fortunate enough to have had wealth and privilege on her side. I feel like we're building a list of some amazing women who lived here. The Spires were fantastically um, influential with a group of composers because Edgar Spire was really into music and he um, helped finance some of the composers, particularly when they were hard up. And he was really good friends with Richard Strauss and Grieg, but he was also very close to Edward Elgar. And in fact, the I think that Edgar Spire um, helped sort of financially speaking Elgar at times but also that Lady Spire was good friends with Edward Elgar. And in fact, the very first performance of the sketches from the second movement of the Violin Concerto by Elgar were performed by Lady Spire with Elgar on the piano at a soiree at their house uh, in London. So um, she was obviously very close to him and she wrote a really poignant letter to Elgar afterwards um, saying I loved playing your your violin concerto, your slow movement. Um, I would be I would love to play it again with an orchestra at some point. It was a, a wonderful piece and I enjoyed it very much. Hmm. To have a patron like Sir Edgar sounds wonderful. I wonder how one goes about getting one of them. I mean, if there happens to be someone listening right now that is very wealthy and would like to offer financial assistance to a local composer, then um, get in touch. So, we know about the Hawes from Kit and her journals, and the Buxtons and Gurneys were other landowners. They'd been here a while. So 
What do we think they thought about these new neighbours moving up to North Norfolk and building right next door? Yeah, there's a there's a sort of thing with the Gurney and Buxton and Hoare uh, timeline, which is um, when they were all the landowners in the area in the earlier part of the 19th century, and that was when the Belfry School got built in 1830. And then Lord and Lady Battersea moved up, and they sort of represented a slightly more cosmopolitan London elite who then moved up to Overstrand. But then they did mix with the slightly more country sort of gentrified element so there was a coming together of those two things and I think that um, it's very likely that um, Lady Battersea you know knew some of the people who were involved with the school here because she became on the board of the school and um, certainly knew of Anna Gurney and Sarah Buxton's legacy and I think admired them as two um, forward-looking women and Lady Battersea herself was very pro women's education. Again there were some really cool women who used to live up here. And the Batterseys used to put on all these shows in the garden and they used to do these big sort of uh, theatre events, theatrical events, where they used to put up all the lights all around the garden and then they used to have shows and musical events and things as well. So I think there was there was a, definitely a period there when it was basically, um, you know, a really sort of amazing place to be and there was loads of stuff going on. I always sort of, in my head, slightly equated to The Great Gatsby. <laughs> There's a sort of thing going on with Escott Fitzgerald in America and I think the version of it in here is sort of in Overstrand where you get all of these sort of rich, sort of uh, liberal elite sort of moving to Overstrand and basically putting on all these great events and having these slightly wild parties. On the grass of the cliff At the edge of the sea God planted a garden, a garden of trees. Need the blue of the skies and the green of the corn. It is there that the regal red poppies are born. Repeat of desire and long dreams of delight. That's where my poppy land is coming in sight. Oh, heart of my heart, where the poppies are born. I am waiting for thee in the hush of the corn. Oh, light of my life, where the puppies are born. I am waiting, I'm waiting in the hush of the corn. Did you recognise it? That was Clement Scott's Garden of Sleep, but given a bit of a jazzy edge. I like to imagine that. Perhaps it was played under the stars in Overstrand at one of these clifftop soirees. As a musician, you can find yourself at some extraordinary events all over the world, but often it's just another gig, and you're mainly wondering about how you'll get home and when you'll get paid. I wonder who was performing at these soirees. I also wonder if Kit and her family would have been invited or even deigned to attend. And I can imagine the local young people hearing the music and seeing the lights. Were they trying to sneak in? Were they hiding in the shrubberies, trying to catch a glimpse of these glamorous parties? There was a time in there when there was goodness knows what going on in the village. And I imagine that the local villagers couldn't make head nor tail of it to a certain extent. But they also probably benefited from it. And I know certainly that Lady Battersea was very generous to the village.
first-time resident that Keith is going to introduce us to is a woman. I must admit I had not heard of her. She was a violinist, singer, pianist and songwriter. <laughs> I like the sound of her already. Teresa Del Riego is a composer and a singer-songwriter that we really got interested in when we started doing the research into the whole history of the village during the lockdown period in 2020. She was an amazing character and was born in 1876, but quite early in her career learned to be learned the violin and learned the piano and began writing songs when she was only 18 and 19 years old and was quite prolific, wrote quite a great deal of number of songs. And one of those songs, which is called Oh Dry Those Tears, um, basically became a, a massive hit. And in the days when there were no record sales as such and we didn't uh, depend on sort of listening to music so much on the radio but we bought music and sheet music and used to play it at home around the piano and learn the songs and sing the songs the sheet music for that song became a massive hit and i think sold well over five million copies and became a massive hit in america Clouds will be so 
was Oh Dry Those Tears by Teresa Del Rego. Whilst researching for this episode and trying to find out about Teresa, it is striking that there is so little about her online. Fortunately, Keith has done some digging about her life and career. She then went on to, she married a, a musician and a head of music at a school and I think wrote a number of other songs. Later in her life, she decided to retire up to Overstrand in North Norfolk, and it was a, a popular spot to move to at that time, and she basically bought one of the large houses on the main road called Sycamore and settled up here later in her life. And actually, she is buried in Overstrand Graveyard, and on her tombstone are engraved the words, Oh, dry those tears, as a tribute to her um, and her popularity through her songs. I mean, in her day, she was massively popular and her songs were made into orchestral medleys and they were sung, there were lots of recordings made of her songs back in the 1930s and 40s in particular. So a wonderful musician and very popular and financially successful songwriter. And yet she's been lost to the mists of time. I can only assume that such success for a female musician in those days must have been fairly extraordinary. Yeah, I think that, you know, she probably was the victim of being uh, in, a, in a man's world, um, you know, that she didn't get probably the, the celebration that she deserved. And I think her songs did go a little bit out of fashion. But I think that the fact that the publishing world was so massive at the time, that she did make a great deal of money out of, um, out of her songs, and in particular that one which did sell millions of copies. We really like um, playing Oh Dry Those Tears with the sheet music around the piano now. I can't find any mention of Overstrand in Kit's journals. John Gray talks of Northreps, Napton, Buxton, Roughton, Munsley and even Cromer once, but never Overstrand. I suspect it's because prior to it becoming the village of millionaires, it was tiny, a miniature fishing village. John and his neighbours worked on the land and there's never any mention of the sea at all besides some talk of smuggling and of the fields that no longer exist because they've fallen into the sea. Do you have any stories connected to Overstrand that you'd like to share? Taking my dog out in the evenings here in the centre of Cromer in mid-February I'm always struck at how many dark windows and empty rooms there are. I understand now that to be able to live in Cromer as a permanent resident is extremely lucky. It's rightly or wrongly a privilege. Try searching for properties to rent or buy. The options are extremely limited, as I'm sure most of you know. Have a look on Airbnb and it's a different matter. Whilst I sometimes find myself getting huffy over all the holiday rentals and seeming lack of permanent accommodation, I do now wonder after this research that Cromer has always been like this to some degree, at least since Populan was born, devoted to the tourists. Many of us locals benefit directly or indirectly from tourism just like they did back in the late 1800s when it all started. Love it or hate it, it's part of life here. Some complain about the influx of Londoners and outsiders. Well, history tells us that this isn't new. Outsiders have always come here, owning a holiday home that they visit occasionally. 
In the past, such families like the Hawes and Buxtons and Gurneys also invested heavily in the community as well as the properties, many of which were actually built with wealthier outsiders in mind. In London, great luxury apartment blocks are built and lie empty all year round, used solely to house foreign money. At least our visitors stay and spend their money in our community. We're definitely not yet a ghost town, like the ones you hear about in other parts of Norfolk or other coastal areas. We have a year-round population that lives and thrives here in Poppyland. Long may it continue. Saying that, I've just attended a meeting of the Sidestrand Archives group in the reading rooms. Yes, those reading rooms. Five people trying to hold on to the rich history of the area with an incredible number of documents collected over the years, but stacked in boxes. It is there that I learned that the Sidestrand where Kit, John Gray lived, and indeed even the village I grew up in, is fading away. Many of the properties have now become Airbnbs. Finding permanent residents to be interested and involved in retaining the village's history is nigh on impossible. The reading rooms themselves have an unclear future. Not yet a ghost village, but getting close. Hopefully, someone soon will come up with the perfect solution to the housing situation. Maybe they'll also come up with a solution to climate change, single-use plastic, the economic divide, energy prices, decline of natural resources, ageing population, food insecurity. So this all brings me back to Poppyland songs. So much gets lost over time. We believe that in this day and age when we record everything and take a thousand photos that there will be records, but without intention, without prescribing meaning, things will still vanish. Kit has lists of field names in her journals, peculiar medieval words from a time when there were scores of small fields, lons or pytals, which were replaced by the large rolling fields we are now so used to seeing. These names would have for a long time just been known by all the local people, geographical reference points. But they've drifted away, with her journals possibly being the only written account of many of them. Next week you'll hear some of them transformed into a poem and song. I had a lovely chat with some local ladies, one of whom was in her 90s and is a born and bred Cromer girl. She told me of some of the unofficial names of places, the sort of thing that you grow up knowing about, but it's probably not written down anywhere and you can't always remember why it has that name. Like the Meadows Car Park being called the Beef Field, because at some point there were cattle kept on that field. Or she talked of Pitlock Corner. I want to hear more of these. Let's collect them all for posterity and I'll pop them into a song. Get in touch at poppylandsongs at gmail.com or you can send me a postcard via the Belfry or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bertie Bow. The final song today is a little off topic. It's not written about Poppyland, but it was hearing about Teresa Del Rego that made me want to share it with you. I wrote it back in 2020 when there seemed no way out and the future was so bleak and unclear. There was an almost constant outpouring of grief from my musician friends and colleagues. When you start playing an instrument and studying music at such a young age, from four, five or six years old, by the time you're an adult, it is who you are. For many of us professional musicians, we found ourselves bereft and existentially lost. Who were we if we couldn't make music with and for others? I wonder whether Teresa experienced something of the same. 
It is hard to know, as there seems so little written about her, but she had great success before she lost her husband in World War I. She had no children. Did she continue composing and playing music after he died, after the war? You don't just stop being a musician and composer, though you can quickly drop out of sight, especially if you're a woman. Is there somewhere a pile of manuscripts? What happened to her? She was almost exactly the same age as Kit. Would they have been friends? Breathe and be Bertie, my friend said to me. But who is this Bertie? I'm not sure that she is the person who I always thought her to be. to Keith for sharing this opulent slice of local Overstrand history, all from a musical perspective, just how I like it. At the Belfry, Keith and Lucy have a wonderful display all about the village and some of the people we have talked about today and more. I highly recommend checking it out. They also have a lovely cafe and lots of community events. Now, We've heard about some really bold women today from the distant past, but what about in living memory? Is there anyone you'd like to tell me about? My grandmother, Verily Anderson, was one such character. She also, against all odds, forged a career as a writer whilst being a widow with five children. Do you have a Poppyland woman in your family tree that needs celebrating? Let me know if you do. Poppylandsongs at gmail.com Next week, I will be thinking more about the land and the geology, the land lost to the sea and the very earth that we live upon. I'll have my dad back on talking about the natural history of Poppyland as well as other guests. Until next time, bye!
Poppyland Songs was hosted, written, produced and recorded by me. It's a one-woman show. 